one of the reasons you tend to see smaller companies take more creative risks is that they have to. They can't afford to be boring. And welcome back to Off Record with your host, Corey Levy. Today, we speak to author, marketer, and entrepreneur, Ryan Holiday, who is well known for being a controversial media strategist, particularly when he was a director of marketing at American Apparel and founder of creative consulting firm, Brass Check Marketing. Ryan, in addition, is a best-selling author of six books, including The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, and The Daily Stoic, and has written for several of the world's largest publications while being a media columnist and editor-at-large for The New York Observer. He has a new book out today, which you can get now on Amazon and elsewhere, titled Conspiracy, Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, Gorka, and the Anatomy of Intrigue. In this week's episode, he tells us why he left college at the age of 19, how he was then hired and mentored by prolific writers Robert Green and Tucker Max, to landing an advisory position to American Apparel's founder, only to in a year become its director of marketing. Ryan goes over his most controversial marketing campaigns, some of the best lessons he's learned along the way, and discusses his new book. There's that and many more. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Off Record. Thank you, Ryan, so much for joining today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'd like to start by asking about college. I know you left college when you were 19. What, what events or circumstances kind of led to making that decision? And how did your parents and friends kind of feel about that? Well, I'll answer the second part first, which is that they did not take it well. Disowned me would probably be a slight overstatement of what happened, but we were not close for some time and we did not speak as a result of it. My parents, I realized, had sort of come to see me not finishing college as a reflection of their parenting. And so they desperately wanted me to stay in it. And I believe uh, with also some good intentions that they're very worried that I would end up under a bridge somewhere. But that, that wasn't the case. I wasn't, you know, just leaving college for the hell of it. I desperately wanted to be a writer. I had a, a job at a talent agency in Hollywood. This was in 2007. So sort of new media is very much on the rise. Social media, you know, YouTube had, had recently sold for over a billion dollars. So this was a unique period to be 19 or 20 years old and be familiar with sort of how the internet worked. So I, I had this job with this talent agency that basically they offered me a full-time job if I would you know, not go back to school. And then I desperately wanted to be a writer and, and I had a side job as a research assistant for this author, uh, Robert Greene, who is the author of The 48 Laws of Power. And I basically looked at it and said, look, if this is what a successful life after graduating from college would look like, like if these are my two dream jobs, why am I going to go back to school and then hope to get these opportunities again after I graduate? And what are some of the things that you've learned from Robert Greene? And yeah, what are some of the things you learned from him? A really good mentor helps you both in personal and professional ways. I think Robert is just a very calm, intelligent, sort of strategic person. He gave me just a lot of general insights as to life. But I would say most of all, he trained me in the the craft that I now make a a good chunk of my living from. He showed me how a book is made. You know, he showed me how to research, how to find the things that go into a book. I was like an apprentice, right? I came in knowing next to nothing. And I left in a space about six or so years later in a position when I sold my first book to a major publisher. So it was about everything you could hope for. There are plenty of kids who pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for an MFA and don't leave with that sort of return on investment. 
And did you work for him before or after he published Mastery? So I was his research assistant on a book he wrote called The 50th Law, and then also his research assistant on Mastery. So I worked through the launch of that book, and I did the marketing for it because I'd since created a marketing company. So that that was sort of my period of working for him. Gotcha. And how did you convince a successful writer to hire you? You said you came in kind of with nothing, didn't, didn't have much. How did you convince him to give you a, a yeah. chance? I was working for another writer. His name was Tucker Max. At the time, he had a both a a number of really successful books and sort of an online publishing platform like for other authors. So he ran Robert's website at the time. And so I was working for Tucker. I'd met Robert through Tucker and the three of us were having lunch one day and Robert was complaining about not having a good research assistant. And I was like, look, I love your books. I know I could do this. I was like, I'll work for you for free. I'll do anything you ask. I'd been such a fan of his books that as I read them, I then read the books that he cited in the bibliography to find the original sources of the story. So I'd sort of reverse engineered how his stuff worked, like just as a fan, just trying to figure it out. So I I had some familiarity with the work. I had another peer of his who was vouching for me. And then I presented it as a sort of not much to lose scenario for him. He didn't hire me as his full-time researcher out of the gate. He gave me one project. I had to transcribe an interview and I I did an okay job. And then another one and another one. And with time, I proved myself and the the position evolved and grew as a result. And I know know it might be hard to like sum up six years into a few sentences, but what were the kind of the biggest takeaways from working with Robert and then also working with Tucker? I think one of the things that Robert told me is he said, Ryan, a, a book needs to be either extremely entertaining or extremely practical. He said most books are sort of somewhere in the middle and that's why they don't work. And so the idea of sitting down and going, you know, what what role does this book play in someone's life? And does it actually justify its expense to the reader? You know, you're asking a lot of your customer. Readers are customers. A lot of authors sort of mistakenly see themselves as simply as artists and that readers are sort of lucky for whatever the artist creates. And that's not really the relationship at all. And so he really helped me understand how to make something that does a job. And then if you do that, you're not as dependent on media or hype or even marketing at all to have a successful run with a book because the the book has that word of mouth, you know, at its back. And what about from Tucker? I mean, I learned a lot from Tucker. Tucker was one of the first people who I think saw potential in me, who believed in me, who sort of told me that that I might have what it takes. So I think at the very most basic level, he just sort of gave me the confidence that I needed to, to go out and do this stuff. But I learned a lot working for someone that was controversial like him. I learned that you've got to know sort of who your fans are and who your fans aren't. And if you have that understanding, it allows you to take creative risks. It allows you to kick the beehive, so to speak, and get things, you know, riled up. I learned a a ton from both of them. And for someone listening, you know, young right now, what do you think are some of the ways one can figure out what he or she is good at? That's a good question. Something that Ira Glass calls the taste talent gap. I wrote about this in my book, Ego is the Enemy. I thought it was interesting. He was saying one of the problems when you're young is that you have really good taste, but you're not that talented. And so you're often very, very critical of your own work and get sort of really discouraged really easily, right? So you know what's good, but then what you make doesn't measure up to that thing. In some respects, I think one of the things you're going to be good at when you're younger is discernment. You're going to have good instincts, but you've got to find where you're actually sort of able to deliver the goods and where you're able to show market improvement. So for me, I don't think I started as a great writer, but if you look at my early writing, not only is there sort of flickers of talent, but the pieces developed 
quickly, right? So I think I was getting better the more I was doing it. I think that's something that you want to see. Like, is there actually evidence of a learning curve? Are you sort of stuck in some spot? The common career advice, right, is like, uh, find your passion. I think that can somewhat be dangerous, right? Because just because you're passionate about something doesn't mean that you're good at it. One of the reasons that I sought out mentors, whether it was Tucker or Robert, is that I was really into writing. I really wanted to do it. And in getting my work in front of people who, who could see it a little bit more objectively than me, seeing that talent or seeing them say, hey, there's something here. You should continue doing this. Help me answer the question that you're asking me. I don't know if there's like a hard and fast test, but one sign would be like, you know, are people who are older than you spotting something in what you're doing? That's a good sign. I'm sure you've had a lot of exposure to young people. What are some ineffective things that you have seen people do? Given that I have written, you know, pretty extensively about mentorship, I hear from a lot of kids who are like, hey, will you be my mentor? Like, I, I probably got five emails about that this morning. And this is totally missing how it works. It's not this like official thing, right? Robert didn't say like, I am willing to mentor you. We had a meeting. He had a problem. I offered to audition, essentially to do a menial task for him and then which was transcribing an interview that was my first thing for him and when i showed myself not to be an idiot he, he gave me something slightly more important and then when i didn't mess that up he gave me something slightly more important and then you know in between you know he would call me and and you know ask about the work and then maybe i would have one one minute at the end of our conversations to be like hey i had a question about something and so over time, that blossom that evolved into a mentorship relationship, it was not that ever officially, and it certainly started much more constrained than that. And so getting these mentorships is something that you don't demand, you don't ask for, something that ensues. And, and that's a common misperception that I see at a very alarming rate, actually. Gotcha. Thank you for sharing that. And I want to talk a little bit about Dove and American Apparel. How did you meet him and get involved being a you know, young director at such a large company? I was familiar with American Apparel, obviously, but Robert Green happened to be on the board of directors. He'd been an advisor to Dove before the company went public. When the company did go public, he was asked to be on the board. And so as I was, you know, having worked for Robert then at that point for quite some time, they needed like, Dove just wanted good people. He wanted like a, an assistant slash advisor type. And Robert suggested me and worked on a, a couple projects here or there. And then Dove said, hey, I want you to come work for me. He didn't have a job title. You know, I don't even think I had an, an ID badge at the company. You know, I took a bit of a leap of faith. It too evolved, right? I took a, not a super high paying position. Again, not one with much status. And that, you know, within probably a year, a year and a half, I was the director of marketing. And so that's how that, that happened for me as well. It was again, taking a risk and, and evolving. What was the most controversial campaign that you did at American Apparel and it got like the most bang for its buck? I would probably say those are slightly different questions. We did a number of super controversial things. Some of them were intentional, right? Whether it's, hey, um, we're going to do advertisements with a porn star or we're going to, you know, have a woman in her 60s or 70s, you know, dress in American Apparel clothes. We're going to do, you know, some double entendre with a dog wearing clothes. You know, we did lots of sort of deliberately controversial, provocative, strange things. And then some of them were completely unintentional. But once we developed a profile for being controversial, sort of everything was seen through that light. So it'd be like somebody in the web department would send out an email that didn't get approval that was worded poorly. And then the next thing you know, it's national news and people would ask me, some people would be like, 
how could you do this? And then other people would say, it's so brilliant. And, and I would say, you know, I didn't even know that this was happening. But one of my favorite campaigns was a campaign we did with a model named Jackie. After we'd done all these really sort of sex-driven ads, one of the creative directors sort of spotted this regal, sort of dignified older woman walking the streets of Manhattan and just said, look, I'd like to shoot you in an American apparel ad. And the, the woman just laughed and she said, no, I'm serious. And we, we ran these ads and, you know, it did millions and millions of impressions all over the world. It was a huge deal. It was provocative precisely because it was provocatively different than what American apparel was known for. How these cost-effective, sure, I think that Jackie campaign cost $3,000 all in and then did you know millions of impressions worldwide. What did it drive in terms of sales? That's obviously another question. But my thinking was always, we have this canvas with advertisements and, and with the company's platform and profile. Let's just do something interesting and cool with it. How do you think entrepreneurs today should deal with controversy? Do you think shy away from it, seek it, or just not back away when it comes up? There are different kinds of controversy and there are different moments, right? Right now we're in a, a very radicalized, very sort of hair trigger culture that it might make sense to steer away from controversy. And other times things are a bit more boring and stay in and you've got to break through the noise. I think generally though, the reason companies have to spend so many millions of dollars on advertisements, whether hiring celebrities or putting a billboard in Times Square or, you know, running endless loops of television commercials is because their shit is boring. You know, and when you're boring, whether your product is boring, whether your advertisements are boring, it costs a lot more. And so I think one of the reasons you tend to see smaller companies take more creative risks is that they have to. They can't afford to be boring. And so if you're a startup and nobody's heard of you, taking some risks, doing some things that might, you know, piss a few people off is probably a more reasonable strategy than if you're a Fortune 500 company in the insurance business that's been around for 120 years. What's something like controversial today that you think won't be tomorrow? I remember in 2008, we did a big campaign for American Apparel that was right after California had passed Proposition 8, which banned gay marriage in the state. And so we did this campaign and it was legalized gay. And we built this whole website and we gave out hundreds of thousands of t-shirts and we ran ads all over the country. And this was really controversial at the time. And it upset a lot of people. I'm sure we lost some customers, but we gained many more. And in retrospect, a company taking a stand on gay rights, particularly a company that had a lot of sort of millennial customers doesn't seem that controversial, but it was at the time. We also did a, a really pro-immigration campaign before that that was controversial, but today it'd somehow it'll probably be even more controversial than it was at the time. So the things that are getting attention now are sometimes very much of the moment, and then that moment passes, or sometimes they're early to the moment, and then you look back at it and you seem, you know, like you predicted it when really you didn't. And I want to talk a little bit about your um, new book that just came out, Conspiracy, Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, Gawker, and the Autonomy of Intrigue. What made you decide to write it? As a writer, you're always looking for projects that are different and exciting, that are not going to be the thing that you've done before. And so in a relatively short period in 2016, uh, a billionaire, that would be Peter Thiel, and one of the kings of, sort of gossip media, which would be Nick Denton, had both independently reached out to me. And it happened that the two of them had been locked in this decade-long war with each other over what it was okay for a gossip publisher to publish what was over the line. It ended with $140 million lawsuit in Florida court in 2016 that Peter Thiel had secretly financed and instigated 
because he was hoping to destroy Gawker. So it's just this sort of incredible story that fell on my lap. And I said, you know, am I going to regret not writing this? And and I felt like I would. And so I did. Do you often use regret minimization as a tactic when making hard decisions? Not necessarily. I think it can sometimes lead you in the wrong direction. But I felt like I didn't know if I would get an opportunity like that again. And more importantly, I didn't actually know if anyone else would get that same opportunity, right? Like I didn't know if there was anyone with my background who could sort of bridge these two worlds. And so it, it felt very meant to be. And you were working closely with both Peter and Nick, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I, sp- I spend a considerable amount of time in- interviewing both of them about a, a whole number of things. And so, you know, I'm not suspecting that either of them is going to be particularly happy with, with the book, which to me means that I did my job well. But they're both these extraordinarily unique individuals who have led very different, but also very similar lives that somehow got locked in sort of this feud that neither of them could get out of. And the result was this surreal series of events. And, you know, it was in some ways sort of an honor to put it to paper. Every day I worked on it, I felt very excited. And do you think like using money to take down a publication is is an abuse of power or falls under freedom of speech? I guess I would unpack what you said a little bit. So look, there are many ways that a billionaire could abuse the wealth that they have, right? They could hire private detectives to follow someone around and then blackmail them with the information, right? They could buy up somebody's debt and foreclose on it. They could do any number of alarming or dangerous things. They could abuse that power. But what's interesting about what Peter Thiel did is that Peter Thiel found an instance in which Gawker had done something that potentially invaded the privacy of another person, right? They they ran a sex tape of the uh, professional wrestler Hulk Hogan uh, that had been itself potentially illegally recorded without Hogan's consent or knowledge. And then when Hogan threatened to sue Gawker, Peter Thiel secretly went to him and said, if you do so, I will pay your legal bills. And so that case wound itself legitimately through the legal system. It eventually got in front of a judge and a jury in Florida. And that judge and jury got to a verdict, which very few cases ever do in the American legal system. And Gawker came out of the losing side. It can't be said that Gawker did not have a chance to defend themselves. Uh, They had many years to defend themselves. They had access to the best lawyers in the country. And ultimately, it was a, you know, a jury of their peers, although we could argue, you know, whether they really were their peers or not. And that was kind of Gawker's problem. But ultimately, a jury legitimately sat and rendered a verdict that said that Peter was right. And so I, I don't see it as much as an abuse of power as some people in journalism have been quick to label it. I, I think it's more complicated than that. What do you personally think of Gawker as a publication? Do you think they you know, crossed the line by publishing this racy stuff about personal lives? Do you think I don't think that was the problem. It's not publishing racy stuff about someone's personal life that is why they're no longer in business. I mean, if you think about what happened in the whole Kogan tape, as far as we understand it, is that his friends were swingers and he had a sexual relationship with his best friend's wife with their permission. But that best friend was also secretly recording that exchange. And then someone stole that tape in an attempt to blackmail Hulk Hogan, leaked part of it to the media, specifically to Gawker, to embarrass him into paying to get the tapes back. And Gawker ran this tape 
this one that Hulk Hogan had very publicly said was recorded without his consent, that he said he would sue anyone that published it, that he claimed to be mortified and embarrassed about. Gawker ran it, and they, they ran it without blurring out his genitals. They ran it without doing any research about it. They ran it without asking him for comment first. They just threw this thing up there because in some ways they thought they were invincible. They thought this was protected by the First Amendment. It really wasn't. And so, you know, it's easy to say like, oh, this is protected by the First Amendment, but not everything is is protected by the First Amendment. Should I be able to go into your house and record your private encounters because you have a podcast? Like, where, where is that line? And, and if I make a history of doing that or I have a track record of doing that, in some cases, Gawker did do things like that to people who are not at all public individuals. In Peter Thiel's case, he's a tech investor. They published his sexual orientation that he had otherwise intended to keep private. Why is that okay? I'm not sure that it is. I'm not saying it's not okay in every case and that Gawker didn't also do a, a lot of legitimate journalism, but it sort of recklessly played fast and loose with things that are ultimately codified in the law and it caught up to them. And, and how do you, even from working with Peter, how do you think he views himself? Do you think he did this as a, as a service to society? Well, I didn't work with Peter. I interviewed him. So our relationship is that of sort of writer and source. But it was fascinating to get his viewpoint. Yeah, I don't think he was particularly motivated by revenge. I think he was motivated by a sense of serving the public good. Of course, we can all agree or disagree to that, just like we can agree or disagree with whether, you know, a, a $400 million donation to Harvard is a good use of billionaire fortune or not. But at some level, it's their money and they get to do with it what they want. And we as a sort of normal people, there's a certain element of just you have to deal with it. And so I think he thought of it as a public service. I mean, he would say in, in one of the interviews, the New York Times, that it was one of the most philanthropic things he'd ever actually done. I don't know if I would go that far, but I, I believe that he believes that which in some ways is all that really matters. What do you think drives him most from interviewing him? What drives Peter Thiel? Yeah. I think he's driven by this sense that humanity is besieged by a number of problems, social and technological and political, and that he's very alarmed at our inability to solve them. And I think he believes that powerful people such as himself, powerful sort of competent people, you know, a technocrat is what's required to solve them. He saw Gawker as an example of that. They like a lot of people complained about Gawker, but nobody thought you could do anything about it. So he was going to do something about it. And what do you think of the current state of journalism in 2018? Well, it's not good. I don't think anyone thinks it's good, except for maybe some unself-aware journalists. I think journalism is incredibly important, but I think systemically it has been undermined by its business model for the last decade or so. The transition from mostly subscription-based journalism to page view journalism, which Gawker helped pioneer, I think has largely been bad for society. I think the economics of cable news uh, have created, you know, this also this sort of scandal driven, got to watch the news in real time as it's happening, or you might miss something sort of mindset that doesn't lend itself well to sort of thoughtful discussion or introspection in really any way. And then we wonder why everything is insane and manic and crazy.
are you going to be doing any marketing stunts for this book or what's the the plan? No, the book itself is provocative and Mm -hmm. unusual. You know, I took an issue that's been widely reported on. I think I attacked it from a unique angle that no one else could have done. That's the best marketing that one can do. You know, I'm going to obviously write about these issues. I'm going to do interviews like this, but I'm not going to run naked down, (laughs) you know, Wilshire Boulevard or something to get to get people to look at me. I, I don't really need to do that at this point. What do you wish you had started doing or done more of much earlier in your life, specifically actions or activities with compounding effects? I wish I'd started journaling earlier. I mean, in some respect, I've basically been blogging since the day I graduated from high school. So I have some written record of what I was thinking about, what I was doing. I wish I'd started journaling and I wish I'd made it a a more integral habit into my life earlier. You know, I started a few years ago to really buckling down and doing it. And it's made my life a lot better. It's helped me work through, you know, difficult issues. It's also created a bit of a record of, you know, my thoughts and experiences in in a more private way than my public writing. And I wish I'd I'd pick that up sooner. And do you journal every single day? Is it in a Google Doc or a a physical notebook? So I actually made my own journal and and published it based on one of my books called The Daily Stoic Journal. So I journal in the morning. I do a preparation for the day ahead, sort of a theme I want to be thinking about that I need to know about. And then I review in the evening how not only that theme, but, you know, sort of how I've actually done with respect to that. So I do it twice a day. What's like a, a life hack that very few people know about that you do? I don't think it's one that very few people know about, but I would say that a stable, committed, long-term relationship is about the best productivity sort of life hack you could possibly come up with it. When I hear entrepreneurs say like, oh, I don't have time for a relationship. To me, that signifies a life that is dangerously out of balance. I think it makes them vulnerable to making poor and bad decisions, both personally and professionally. And I think it also, success shouldn't punish you with loneliness. And so I, I would say that I've been with my wife since I was in college and it's we didn't get married until much later, but certainly the, the best life hack slash life decision that I've made. And, and on that front, uh, is there anyone you want to thank I wouldn't be here without, you know, Tucker taking a chance on me, Robert Green taking a chance on me, Dove taking a chance on me. Uh, my publisher took a chance publishing this sort of very unusual book that I published when I was 25. I, my agent did the same thing. I'm the product of people taking these chances. I have good relationships with some of these people still, you know, not so much with others. But that gratitude is something I think about with all of them on a regular basis, because even when things change or evolve, we're still a product of that initial gift that we were given from those people. How did you become that chance versus somebody else? Like you think you could distill that down into... Sure. Why does someone bet on someone, right? Yeah. I, I think it's a couple things. I think one is, do you actually have some raw goods, right? A baseball team isn't picking you if you can't throw a fastball or run to first base quickly, right? Do you have some actual raw athletic talent or coding talent or writing talent or picking stocks or whatever it is? You got to have some raw talent. You have to be willing to work hard. This is the most important thing in the world to me. I was willing to put in tons of work. I was also really eager to learn. So they would give me one thing and I would come back with 50 questions and I'd want to understand it. And I would be learning on my own and bringing things to them. And so that was a big part of it. And then I would say the biggest one that I think young people miss is that you got to have your shit together like as a human being. And I don't mean like, you know, you shower and shave or whatever. But I mean, like the amount of young people that I get emails from where I can just read the crazy, like, like this kid is nuts. Like, I'm sure he's really nice. I'm sure he wants this really bad. But like, he has not got his, he's sending off a lot of red flags. It's usually dudes. Uh, I don't get a lot of emails from, from crazy 
women, probably because I think there's fewer of them in this sense. But I didn't ever give them the sense that I was a risk to the things that were valuable to them, that I was going to bring drama or conflict or difficulty into their life. I was someone that they could talk to and wanted to work with and wanted to spend time with and wanted to do well. And so that's really important. And, and frankly, I think this ties back into the, long, the, the relationships thing. If your personal life is a mess, it's going to show when you show up for work and, and people are going to be wary of you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this interview. Thank you once again for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Ryan Holiday. Thank you so much again, Ryan, for coming on the show. He brought up some interesting insight into the Gorka versus Hulk Hogan lawsuit and brought forth an interesting discussion about powerful people and their money and what they can do with it. I can only imagine what more he talks about in his new book, out now on Amazon and elsewhere, called Conspiracy, Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, Gorka, and the Anatomy of Intrigue. You can find all these links in the description. You can also follow your host, Corey Levy, on Twitter at Corey. Thank you once again for listening. We have episodes coming out every Tuesday. Stay tuned and we'll see you next week on Off Record.